Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be completing our trilogy on atheism. How do we come to find out what God's attributes are? God's attributes are mere stipulations. We don't discover his attributes. Whatever bizarre definition of mercy, or justice, or omnipotence, or omniscience, or freedom, or holiness that a believer conjures up to avoid problems, the exact nature of these properties is simply declared to be true. They are not discoveries. They certainly can't be demonstrated to be true. They're described in a book, sometimes a holy book, sometimes not, or they're inferred from the book. Furthermore, the believer assumes God is coherent, so when they're alerted to a contradiction, they just stipulate a new definition of some attribute. This process can go on indefinitely, and for some reason, the believer never fully abandons their original position. They just keep changing it ad hoc over and over again. It's important to note that our modern, convoluted definitions of God were not there at the beginning. Our earliest notions of gods were essentially just beings like us that were more powerful. They didn't start off as omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, spaceless, timeless, disembodied minds. They became that way over centuries. I think the vague notion of God was basically grandfathered in. God started off as something that was coherent, a being that was basically like us but more powerful, like a chimp might think of a human, but then our notions of God evolved over time, until we ended up with this bizarre, gasping Cronenberg monster of a concept that bears little resemblance to the gods of our ancestors. Over time, questions were asked, objections were raised, and qualities of God were altered and tacked on again and again over the centuries. And after a few thousand years of this, we've ended up where we are today, with a totally incoherent idea. William Lane Craig, noticing this process, has said, quote, Theists find that anti-theistic critiques of certain conceptions of God can actually be quite helpful in formulating a more adequate conception. End quote. Theists will realize there's a problem, and ad hoc reconfigure something about God's attributes. That goes on and on and on, and eventually they have a notion of God that's even less coherent than the one they started with. The Trinity is a perfect example of this process. The Trinity is a theological concept that wasn't there at the start. It was conceived over many generations to answer questions about the relationship of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They kept eliminating answers, figuring out what the relationship couldn't be, what would be heretical to believe, until finally they got to the point where three is supposed to equal one. Even the Catholic Church describes the Trinity as a, quote, mystery. The evolution of the Trinity is a fascinating subject, and it illustrates what likely happened many times over in many different communities regarding other questions on the nature of God. So I hope you won't mind if I play a five-minute history of the Trinity. It's really interesting in its own right, and I promise it's worth the diversion. If you read Matthew and Luke carefully, where you read about the virgin birth story, there is no hint that Jesus existed before the virgin birth. 
But as people thought about it more, they thought he must have been the son of God from eternity past. And so they started developing a different view, a view which is not an exaltation view, not a view where a human becomes a divine being. They started developing a view of incarnation. An incarnation view is the view that Christ came into the world having existed before in the heavenly realm. This is not the view of Mark. It's not the view of Matthew or Luke. It is the view of the Gospel of John. Once Christians started thinking more widely that Jesus had been a pre-existent divine being, they started debating in what sense was he divine being. And if he was a divine being, how is he a human being? And so the debates continued. So a view called docetism comes from a Greek word, dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. There were Christians in the second and third Christian centuries who said Christ was God and he only seemed to be a human. This view lost out because Christian theologians said if Christ wasn't human, he couldn't die for the sins of the world. Salvation requires that he not only be divine, but he also be human. And so this docetic view lost out. There were Christians who said, actually, Christ is both human and divine, but it's because of this. There was a man, Jesus, who was a very righteous man, who at some point in his life, say his baptism, was entered into by a divine being from heaven. I call this a separationist view because it separates between Jesus and the Christ. That was another view. That was declared a heresy because if Jesus isn't completely human, and if he isn't completely God at one and the same time, then you're not dealing with one person. You're dealing with two persons. But Jesus Christ is one person, not two persons. A more interesting view in some ways is a view that scholars have called modalism. It's called modalism because it says that God exists in three modes. Now, just like I myself, Bart Ehrman, just like I myself personally, I am at one and the same time, I am the son to my father, I'm the brother to my sister, and I'm the father to my children. I am a son, a brother, and a father. And God's like that. So this is a view called modalism because God exists in three modes of existence. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This view ended up losing out too, even though it, it was uh, very popular a long time, and possibly people today still hold some view like this, but it ended up losing out. It ended up losing out because surely the Father and the Son are different from one another. Uh, you know, when Jesus was on earth, he sometimes would pray to God the Father. He wasn't just talking to himself. This modalist view was popular uh, in Rome especially and was the view of the bishops of Rome, people who would have later become the Pope. And eventually then it was, uh, it, it, it was turned back by people who held to a different view, the Trinity. It was in the context of arguing about modalism that one of the church fathers, a man named Tertullian, devised the term Trinity. The Trinity refers to the three persons who are separate persons, individual persons, who are all God. But he thought the Son and the Holy Spirit were inferior to God the Father because you can't have two things that are almighty. He thought that the Son was subordinate to God the Father. Eventually, this view was uh, superseded by the view that there is a trinity of three beings who are all God. They're equally God, and yet there's only one God. There's one God manifest in three persons. 
Well, but if you got three of them, there are three gods, right? No, there's only one. Okay, if there's one, then there's not three, right? No, there are three. The Trinity is a mystery, which means you cannot understand it. And if you think you understand it, you misunderstand it. <laughs> this became the traditional view of Christianity. My point is, the early Christians did not think this. You will not find this doctrine in the New Testament. All four of these views, docetism, separationism, modalism, and the Trinity, all four of those are logical outworkings of the view that Christ is God while God is God. It's just one of those views ended up becoming the orthodox view. My incoherentist approach assumes an ooh god, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omni this and omni that. If believers just claimed that God is really powerful and really knowledgeable without the ridiculous omni prefix, I don't think I could make much of an atheist case. There's nothing incoherent about a being who's more knowledgeable and powerful than we are. In fact, there are some Jews who claim that the notion of an omni-god is a curse from the Greeks. Apparently there's no Hebrew word for omnipotent, at least not one that appears in the Old Testament. A believer could wriggle out of atheist arguments and many other paradoxes by simply rejecting the omni part of God's goodness, power, knowledge, and so on. Think of how much pointless theologizing could have been avoided if a childish superlative hadn't been tacked on to all of God's traits. It truly boggles the mind. There's no mention of omnipotence in the Old Testament but these superlative traits are quite clearly present in the New Testament. Like I said, these arguments only pertain to certain conceptions of God. If you're not committed to accepting an ooh God, then I don't think I have much of a case. But if God's not omnipotent, we're still free to ask the question posed at the end of the Epicurean Paradox, why call him God? There are two other ways I see that a theist could take to dodge atheist arguments. The first way was explained by Richard Swinburne in his book The Coherence of Theism. Inductively successful a posteriori arguments could indirectly show that God is an intelligible being. In other words, if the cosmological argument, teleological argument, and argument from miracles are sound, God's coherence would be implied. Though we can't think of an intelligible definition of God, if we have reason to believe God exists, we have indirect reason to believe that God is coherent. The problem is that it's not exactly agreed that arguments for God are sound. If we don't accept the argument from miracles, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, and so on, we have no reason to resist taking atheism at face value and believing that God is incoherent. There's still one easy way a Christian could successfully dodge an atheist argument. The question is this, does divine omnipotence mean that God can do that which is logically impossible? Or are there logical limitations even for an omnipotent being? Most apologists and theologians today agree that God's omnipotence is constrained by logical possibility. God can't do logically contradictory things, and this doesn't mean that he's not omnipotent. But this has not always been a consensus view. Descartes, for example, was adamant that an omnipotent God would be able to do that which is logically impossible. God would be able to create a square circle. Some have argued that God, being the author of the world, 
is not subject to logic. He's able to transcend logic. Logic was created by God in the same way matter was created by God. This view could also be characterized as holding that there are no necessary truths. Alvin Plantinga has called this view universal possibilism, though versions of it have been defended by Descartes and other philosophers and theologians. Most would agree that there are necessary truths of logic and mathematics which are true in all possible worlds, and which God is not free to violate. God is subject to truths of mathematics and logic. Many Christians found and still find this position uncomfortable, since God's sovereignty seems threatened. God is forced to comply with something external to himself, just like the rest of us. Some Christians have been motivated to reject this view. In fact, any Christian could wriggle out of the paradox of the Trinity, atheist arguments, by affirming the doctrine of created eternal verities, universal possibilism, or some other similar position. Contradiction? Who cares? Complaining about a logical contradiction in God's nature would be like complaining God's nature is in conflict with the mass of the electron or some other physical state of affairs that appears contingent. On this view, laws of physics and laws of logic have the same status. They were both created by God and could have been different. God's omnipotence does mean that he can perform logically contradictory actions on this view and even have a nature that's logically contradictory. Violating laws of logic would be no different from violating laws of physics. If God willed it, 2 plus 2 could have equaled 3. A could be not A at the same time and in the same way. So this view does lead to absurdities, but the whole point is that that doesn't matter. One problem is that this seems to undermine the entire project of natural theology. Nothing has to make sense, including God and nature. How could one possibly use reason to understand God? through his creation. Biting that bullet seems worse than simply arguing that logical truths are necessary and that this doesn't threaten God's sovereignty in any serious sense, which is what appears to be the consensus view these days. I've had an experience of God. That's why I know he's real, and why I won't be falling for any of your petty philosophical word games. Maybe I can't define God, but I've experienced God firsthand. This is similar to Swinburne's argument about the implied coherence of God, given the success of arguments in God's favor. If I've had a genuine experience of God, that indirectly implies his coherence. I've also heard the experience of God point made by apologist J.P. Moreland, and I'd say it's related to Calvin and Plantinga's census divinitatis. I'm not sure if these believers are saying God is an experience, or God caused them to have an experience. Either way, my response is the same. I don't doubt the reality of your experiences, but having the experience, and having thoughts about your experience, for example claiming to know the cause of the experience, are separate. If I taste hot sauce, I'm able to predict what'll happen but only subjectively. Personally, I couldn't give an objective, third-person description of what would happen that involves neuroscience, microbiology, and the chemical content of the hot sauce. I could only give a subjective description of what would happen. On the one hand, there's the kind of knowledge that comes with conscious experience, direct, immediate acquaintance with what it's like to have the experience. 
You know what it's like to taste hot sauce by tasting hot sauce. But just because you have this subjective experience doesn't magically grant you different kinds of knowledge that involve objective description. I want to make this distinction because I feel that believers often misunderstand my objection to their experiences of God. They seem to think I'm saying something like, that sauce wasn't hot, and they think, I absolutely know with certainty what I experienced. God speaks to you, you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, you spoke in tongues, you know you witnessed a miracle, you felt overwhelming love, or joy, or forgiveness, or the peace that passes understanding. I'm not in doubt of those things in the exact way many believers seem to think I would be. I'm not saying the hot sauce wasn't hot, but you can't smuggle in an explanation or interpretation of the empirical data and conflate it with the data. That's the crucial point. The experience and the interpretation of the experience are not the same thing. Those would be thoughts about your experience. What I'm saying is easy to grasp in the abstract, but in the real world, I know what I saw is often conflated with, I know what caused what I saw, without the slightest thought. I know what I felt, and I know what caused what I felt, is the crucial distinction I'm trying to make here. Your thoughts about the experience are distinct from the experience. So let's take the hot sauce example a little further. Imagine that as I tasted the hot sauce, you placed a curse on me that I would burn my tongue. Then you claim that this is evidence, if not proof, of your supernatural abilities. If that sounds ridiculous, just change hot sauce to modern medical treatment and curse with intercessory prayer. Countless times, the recovery of prayed-for patients who were simultaneously being treated by doctors is credited entirely to God. That's because the data is being conflated with an interpretation of the data. The patient recovered, therefore God caused the recovery. The child was diagnosed by a doctor with autism. Later on, they're not diagnosed with autism. God cured the child of autism. I know what I saw. And that one is a lot more common these days than you might think. Another explanation or interpretation would be that the child was misdiagnosed or prematurely diagnosed. They could have displayed some of the traits of autism at one point without actually having the condition and outgrew them as they developed. Maybe they still have the condition, but it's milder than originally supposed. All those seem like simpler and better explanations than a disembodied mind immaterially rearranged the matter in my child's brain so they would make better eye contact and pick up on social cues more effectively. The same goes for hearing God's voice, which I think is really just your voice, or God's presence during worship, which I think is reducible to music, lights, being in a crowd, or speaking in tongues, which I made a whole episode explaining. The point is that it's your interpretation of your experience that's in question here, not your experience. And though you shouldn't doubt the reality of your experience, you also shouldn't conflate your experience with any particular explanation. Those would be thoughts about your experience. I know what I experienced is not the same as I know all the causes of what happened. And really this is pretty basic skepticism. And what I've been saying has applications far beyond religious experience. so obviously incoherent. Why are there so many people who believe in God? 
I made an episode a while back, episode 22, about why I think people believe in gods. My one-sentence answer is that belief in God is an accidental byproduct of our hyperactive agent detection device that gives us a sense that there is agency where there really is none. And besides, I don't say that God is obviously incoherent. If it were obvious, then it wouldn't take 20 minutes to give the short pitch. I think God is alleged to have multiple attributes that are meaningless, internally incoherent, or logically incompatible with each other. But it's much more subtle than a square circle, which only has two traits that flatly contradict each other once you know the meaning of square and the meaning of circle. God can provoke associations and feelings, which can lead to the impression that there's some kind of foggy meaning there. All-powerful, all-knowing, merciful, just. But every word in the sentence, colorless green ideas, sleep furiously, can also provoke associations and feelings. Yet the sentence taken as a whole is unintelligible. God's nature shouldn't seem more and more inscrutable upon further examination, right? Certainly not a God who wants us to know him, and not a God who wants us to know him and created our cognitive capacities for understanding. It's possible that a God who didn't care to have a personal relationship with me would be unintelligible to my mind, but not the Christian God. Is absence of evidence evidence of absence? In the case of a God who wants me to know about him? Yes. A God who desired a relationship with human beings would make himself easily comprehensible to the human mind. Doing otherwise would provide a totally unnecessary obstacle to achieving his goal, to our mutual detriment. Though it's a bit more to my detriment than his. If things don't work out between God and I, he'll be sad that I'm not his friend and I'll be existing in eternal conscious torment, at least according to billions of Christians who have existed. Even if the Christian doesn't affirm that view of hell, and instead affirms something like annihilationism, I'm still going to miss out on an eternity of bliss, so I'm pretty sure that I'm the one with a bit more to lose here. There are very good reasons to suppose that the Christian God is incoherent, and thus doesn't exist. Positive atheism, as in disbelief and not merely a lack of belief, is justified if it is the case that the concept of God is incoherent, and justified a priori. If atheists are correct, that means we could have a set of a priori arguments for positive atheism. Many believers will be unable to provide a conception of their God that doesn't terminate in irresolvable problems. But those believers will rest in the assurance that someone can. This is what Dan Dennett calls doxastic labor, performed by religious authorities. This provides assurance to believers that the tenets of their religion are true, even though they don't really understand them, or even claim to understand them, when pressed. We do the believing, the authorities do the understanding. That's the division of doxastic labor. And I can relate to this firsthand. When I was losing my faith, I believed that some wise apologist out there could handily answer all my objections. And it took a while to discover that this hypothetical apologist was a creation of my own mind that allowed me to cling to Christianity 
even after it stopped making sense. To quote Dennett, We lay people do the believing. We sign on to the doxology and defer the understanding of those dogmas to the experts. End quote. I wonder how many believers out there also can't make any sense of the idea of God or the Trinity, but believe that someone, somewhere, can make sense of those ideas. I started this series off with a quote from William James, from the Varieties of Religious Experience. Quote, So we have this strange phenomenon, as Kant assures us, of a mind believing with all its strength in the real presence of a set of things of no one of which it can form any notion whatsoever. Of course, the retreat into transcendence will inevitably be made. You can't know God's nature. You're finite and he's infinite. If that's the case, and we can't know God, then we're not talking about a Christian God. It's completely impossible to know God, and he wants me to know him? That's a contradiction. Besides, talk about having your cake and eating it too. God is knowable when things make sense, and unknowable when there's a contradiction. If you walk into a Bible study, or a church, or a seminary, they won't be shy about telling you all sorts of things about what God is and what he wants. And of course, the, the real truth of the story is, is too great for us to understand, blah, 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 blah. And you know, that, that is where this always terminates. Mm-hmm. It always terminates in the idea, well, okay, say what you will, play your little logic games, try to capture him by language, but no human being could possibly understand God. He does transcend our knowledge. But, but you know, to me, if you're going to make the transcendence argument, if you're going to bail there and, and rest your ideas of God in this transcendent realm, yeah. be consistent. If God is unknowable, then shut your mouth yeah. and say God and is say, unknowable. Don't say that you can know him when that, you win the lottery, right, but not exactly. know him when he wipes out a And cow. why bother worshiping and dedicating your life to something that's completely unknowable? You can't retreat into transcendence yeah. when you're called out on the floor and then make a non-transcendent, you know, a, a very human-like deity the rest of the time. That's all I have for you today. I have two new patrons to thank, Rick Pierre and Keegan J. Chalker. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Keegan. And, of course, I'd like to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, pre-nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but your colorless green ideas do sleep furiously, you can follow our social media on Facebook and Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.